Welcome to the Dermalorian Podcast from the Dermatology Education Foundation. There has been increased attention lately on the diversity of skin disease presentations across skin tones. The term skin of color can be used to describe individuals from a number of geographic locations or ethnic backgrounds, says dermatologist Dr. Ted Rosen. Speaking at Derm 2022, he addressed sarcoidosis, which he notes is one of the most important systemic diseases seen in skin of color. Peak incidence is 20 to 40. It's more common in women than men by a ratio of two to one. Look at African-American women, 40 per 100,000 incidents. African-American men, just slightly less than that, 30 per 100,000. Compared to Caucasians, 9 to 10 per 100,000, men and women. But look at other individuals in that skin of color category who have very low incidence of sarcoid. Hispanic individuals in general, about four per 100,000. Asian individuals in general, about three per 100,000. So what we're talking about here is a disease that's more common. And I will let the cat out of the bag. It's more severe in African-American or Black individuals. Yes, you can see it worldwide in all sorts of ethnicities, but this is a really high-risk group. We think it's a reaction, uh, cell-mediated reaction, hypersensitivity to something, some antigen. We do not know what that is. There may be a genetic component because there are certain things that are often but not uniformly found. This is a multi-system polymorphic, which means it looks like all sorts of things, disorder, Systemic disease may be occult. You may not see it. You may not have symptoms referable to it, but it's very important. And it can be fatal. Sarcoid can be fatal, one to 5%. And we'll review treatment. This, I cannot emphasize this enough because skin manifestations of sarcoid are common. There are differing numbers, but Somewhere between 30 and 60% of black patients with sarcoid will manifest with skin signs. And yet they may have occult systemic disease, which is very important to monitor and treat. So multi-system disease, dactylitis, these sausage-shaped digits, swollen sausage-shaped digits. It can involve bone, and when it does, it's destructive. Look at those areas, compare that to the rest of the bony structures, which are normal, just destroying, involving with granulomas, that's the nature of the disease, involving and destroying bone. In the eyes, this can involve lacrimal glands, which can be swollen. Usually there's a feeling like gritty feeling, or dry eye type feeling associated with lacrimal gland involvement. It can be bilateral or unilateral. Of course, we all associate sarcoid with pulmonary disease. And that can vary from just hilar adenopathy all the way to parenchymal involvement, 
with fibrosis of the lung tissue, pulmonary hypertension, uveitis, inflammation of the eye, enlargement of and granulomatous inflammation of the liver or the spleen. The heart, a very, very important thing because it may be asymptomatic, occult, and yet cardiac involvement is the deadliest form of sarcoid. CNS can be involved. Overall, big picture, extrathoracic sarcoid, so not the lungs, outside the chest, 30 to 50% of patients. I found this is a relatively recent research letter from a well-known institution where they looked at sarcoid involving all ethnicities, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, black patients, they were all presenting with skin sarcoid. Black patients with skin sarcoid were 70% more likely to have extracutaneous disease than all the other patients comprising the non-black patient cohort, 70%. So you may make the diagnosis of cutaneous sarcoid, but you have to keep this in mind. Let's go one step further. Black patients were at the highest risk of cardiac sarcoid. A third had cardiac sarcoid, way more common than in the rest of the cohort of their sarcoid patients who did not identify as African-American or Black. Often, often, this was asymptomatic and only discovered by imaging, which I'll talk about in just a second. So you have to remember this. It's an important point. Let's talk about skin for a second, since we're in dermatology. These are some of the types of skin findings one can see with sarcoid. Classic lupus, perneo, annular, psoriasis form, ichthyosiform, verrucous, ulcerative, hypopigmented, nodular, micropapular, and even alopecia. This is classic lupus perneo. These purplish red asymptomatic, generally nodules seen around the orifices, around the eyes, around the nose, around the mouth. This is classic cutaneous sarcoid. But look at all these other things. These are all sarcoid too. Biopsy proven, ichthyosis looking, micropapular, verrucous sarcoid looks like a big wart. Sometimes it looks a little more psoriasiform hypopigmentation. There can be substance underneath it, or it can just be macular, flat, hypopigmentation. But when you biopsy, there are sarcoidal granulomas underneath it. Remember, multiple morphologies, any of which or any combination of which can be seen. Remember, unlike other groups in black patients, extracutaneous disease is common, almost three quarters of patients. So you need to look for extracutaneous disease and it needs to be treated. Sometimes 
along with in the same way that you're treating the skin, sometimes with additional medications, and it needs to be appropriately monitored. Tests, hypercalcemia, not uncommonly accompanies sarcoid. You wanna know that so you don't get kidney stones. There might be a hypergammaglobulinemia, so a serum protein electrophoresis is reasonable. The angiotensin converting enzyme or ACE level is a little controversial because it may or may not be elevated in sarcoid. If it's elevated, that reflects a large granuloma load. And if it's elevated in cutaneous diseases, mild to moderate, there are granulomas elsewhere. It's a message to look for occult disease. Everybody with sarcoid on the skin needs a chest x-ray to look for everything from hyaluradenopathy to pulmonary parenchymal disease to pulmonary fibrosis. And scans are advisable. An MRI is probably the best thing to look for asymptomatic occult cardiac sarcoid, which needs to be monitored because it's deadly. And a CT scan for the lung to make sure that there's nothing that has been missed by chest x-ray. Gallium scan used to be done. It's now been replaced with a PET scan. That might be another thing to do to look for foci of sarcoid. Where is the disease and what might it be affecting? Treatment. Iffy treatments include allopurinol. Thalidomide seems to be helpful, at least in some studies. One study, it wasn't helpful. But of course, you can't do thalidomide forever because you get neuropathy. Isotretinoin, very little literature, very questionable literature on the efficacy of tetracycline derivatives for sarcoid, but there's some literature suggests it might be helpful. And chlorambucil, which is a leukemia drug at low dose may also be helpful. Standard reliable agents for sarcoid. Not everyone is reliable for every patient. So a bit of it's trial and error. Steroids, both topical, systemic, and interlesional injection. Antimalarial agents, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine is usually used. It's better tolerated. Six and a half milligrams per kilogram per day or less. Methotrexate, orally. 10 to 25 milligrams single weekly dose. And anti-TNF drugs, not etanercept, because it blocks a receptor. What you want is something that will soak up the TNF that are in, is deposited in tissue. TNF is responsible for the maintenance of the granuloma. And if there's no TNF there, the granuloma falls apart Ergo, the disease is treated. So the two that are most widely used, neither approved. In fact, none of this is approved for sarcoid, but infliximab and adalimumab. Usually using adalimumab requires weekly, not every other weekly dose. And infliximab, every eight weeks, IV infusion, five milligrams per kilogram, you can go up. But when you go above five milligrams per kilogram on your infliximab infusions, there are more risks of side effects. So the big four, 
steroid, antimalarial, methotrexate, anti-TNF. They can be used together if need be. If one doesn't work, it can be replaced. If it works partially, you can add something to it. Those are the best ways to treat sarcoid. But keep this in mind. Treatment for sarcoid is not curative. When those lesions are gone, they're not cured. They're suppressed. So in general, treatment must continue. And that's also true for cardiac involvement, for pulmonary involvement, for osseous involvement, for joint involvement, for eye involvement. It's always suppressive. You're trying to control the disease, not necessarily cure the disease. You're listening to the Dermalorian podcast from the Dermatology Education Foundation. Ahead, Dr. Rosen discusses hydratinitis suppurativa in skin of color. But first, let's hear from Dr. April Armstrong in our Dermalorian clinical clip. She reviews the evidence, or lack thereof, linking gluten intake to psoriasis. I have a lot of patients coming to me before seeing me have tried gluten-free diet, and most of them are actually not quite sure. So what's the evidence? So first of all, I, I assume most of you have consumed gluten already today, and uh, um, it's a general name for the protein that's fi- found in wheat, rye, and barley. And there is a form uh, of gut disease, as you know, called celiac disease, where patients have inflammatory response to this dietary uh, gluten in the small intestine. And you can test for gluten sensitivity uh, in our patients. There are two types uh, of serum tests. You can do the tissue transglutaminase test or the endomycial antibody test. But to get the bona fide diagnosis of celiac disease, you do have to uh, undergo small intestine biopsy. So this is really important. So you have on one end patients diagnosed with celiac disease, typically those who have undergone small intestine biopsy, and uh, a larger spectrum of patients uh, which haven't done that but have tested positive in terms of their gluten sensitivity. So what's the evidence between gluten and psoriasis? First of all, celiac disease is twice more likely to be seen in psoriasis patients compared to the general population. And also, we also see higher levels, more proportion of patients with gluten sensitivity based on the serum tests in our psoriasis patients. Now, what about the effect? The main question here is what's, what about the effect of gluten free diet in our psoriasis patients? So, first of all, in patients with confirmed celiac disease, having a gluten free diet will not only improve their uh, bowel symptoms, but it also can improve their psoriasis symptoms. The second category are patients who test positive for markers of gluten sensitivity. And this is where the literature is a little bit murky. They may not have had a small intestine biopsy yet. Some studies seem to suggest that a gluten-free diet can lead to improvement in clinical psoriasis severity. And then the last category are patients who test negative for serologic markers of gluten sensitivity. And studies have shown in that particular category that gluten-free diet does not help in terms of their psoriasis. And in fact, uh, oh, there, there's a very large study uh, 
looking at the nurses' health study, where they looked at over 85,000 women who are enrolled in this nurses' health study and followed them over time, and they did not find that gluten intake uh, prospectively influenced the incidence of psoriasis. So that was very helpful to our field. So as a result, number one, so should your patients, psoriasis patients, all go out and get themselves tested for gluten sensitivity? The answer to that is no. And the reason for that is because the American College of Gastroenterology only recommend patients, certain patients, for screening. And those include those with a first-degree relative with celiac disease and those with active gastrointestinal symptoms. Up next, Dr. Rosen talks about the diagnosis and management of hydradenitis separativa in skin of color. While this condition is generally classified as a skin disease, it can have a number of systemic comorbidities. We can clearly say hydradenitis tends to be more common in skin of color, in particular in black individuals. Not exclusive, not quite like sarcoid, but more common. It carries a very large psychosocial burden, everything from depression, lack of self-confidence, decreased socially functioning, interferes with personal relationships because of odor and the purulent discharge, stains clothes leading to embarrassment. So it really affects quality of life. Metabolic syndrome in 40% of those who have hydradenitis, including obesity, dyslipidemia, diabetes, and hypertension. There may be spondyloarthropathy up to 50% plus, inflammatory bowel disease, increased risk of polycystic ovary syndrome. We've already talked about psychosocial issues, but over-diagnosed depression. Small increased risk of lymphoma, certainly increased risk of anemia due to blood loss, and thyroid dysfunction. So that's why I've included hydradenitis among the systemic disorders seen in skin of color because of some of these. Also keep in mind that almost exclusively in black patients, you can see in association with hydradenitis, the so-called follicular occlusion triad or tetrad, hydradenitis, acne conglobata, way past the normal age of acne, dissecting cellulitis of the scalp, and pilonidal cysts is the rest of the tetrad. So one should always inquire and look for these other potential problems. I think of major importance is the fact that squamous cell carcinoma can occur in hydradenitis. But is this an issue in skin of color? And the answer is yes. 4.6%, roughly 5% of hydradenitis patients will develop squamous cell carcinoma. What are the risk factors? Being male, gluteal involvement with the hydradenitis, smoking, the longer the duration of the hydradenitis, and skin of color, particularly African-American. Clinical features, I'm just going to review very quickly. Your familiar deep-seated painful nodules, which ultimately connect 
So they're draining sinus tracts, abscesses, bridging scars between areas of involvement. Late, there may be double open comedones. This involves typically axilla, groin, perineal area, perianal area, the buttocks, the inframammary folds, and much less commonly, the actual abdomen and the neck, but it can be very widespread. It's chronic, recurring, waxing, and waning. There are different ways to assess hydradenitis, all sorts of staging and grading systems. I like the Hurley staging because it's simple. The Hiscar has often been used now in studies. It was, the, it was invented for use in clinical trials, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best. So what are therapeutic measures for hydradenitis separativa? And why is that important in skin of color? General therapeutic measures, number one is adequate pain management. Aside from the embarrassment, the malodor, the draining, the staining clothes, this hurts. But you don't want to get someone addicted. And yet we know we're in the middle of a national opioid crisis, which is even worse in the Black community. So if you're giving someone opioids and they live in a community or have associates and friends who live in a community where opioids are relatively easily accessed, there's a risk, an additional risk of addiction. Smoking makes this worse. We don't actually have worked out what, but we know that's true. In Europe, hydradenitis is often called smoker's boils. So smoking cessation is important as part of the therapeutic general intervention. But we know there's a disparity. There's increased prevalence of smoking in the skin of color group. So if you want someone to stop smoking, but the people that hang out with are all smoking, it's really hard to stop. That's why it's important to put it in this particular presentation. And then weight loss. We know weight loss helps. And yet there's a disparity in obesity, which is more prevalent in the skin of color group. So here are the therapies. And time precludes me from going into all of them. Antibiotics generally are short-lived if they're effective at all. And although clindamycin and rifampin have been popularized, in my hands, they don't work terribly well. Or if they do, they don't work for a long time. Recently, several papers have basically resurrected the idea of using interlesional triamcinolinocetinide injections right into draining tracts, right into draining nodules, high concentration, 10, 20, even 40 milligrams per ml. Most patients who are managed in part that way actually like those injections and find they're helpful, according to recent publications. Heat therapy may be useful, and you can generate that with a neodymium YAG laser and others that are used for skin tightening for cosmetic reasons, but the heat that's generated may help reduce the activity of hydradenitis. All retinoids might be helpful. And then a variety of other things like metformin, 500 milligrams two to three times a day, finasteride, 
anywhere from one to five milligrams a day and spironolactone, 50 to 200 milligrams a day. All of those may be helpful in select patients. What I do what from a medical standpoint is I treat this by stacking agents. I do something, if it doesn't work, we stop it. If it helps, but it doesn't really lead to the kind of improvement the patient and I both would like, then I stack. I add another thing and I add another thing. For biologic drugs, adalimumab is the only one that's approved for hydradenitis suppurativa. But if you really look at the data, it's useful, but it's not uniformly useful. Patients all the time don't respond. So other biologic drugs have been tried. Eustachinumab seems to be quite helpful to start, but often patients flare. It recurs. Secucinumab, based on some studies, looks very useful. The salcumab looks very useful. But all of those are basically trial and error. Aprimolast has been used. Again, that would be trial and error and try getting it for your patient when the diagnosis isn't psoriasis, not so easy. And then I've listed some things that are being investigated, explored, bromecamab, which is an anti-IL-1A, an anti-complement agent, IFX-1, and then the JAK inhibitors, the wonder drugs for everything. So what about surgery for hydradenitis? Well, surgery can include everything from just incision and drainage. I would not highly recommend it. There's frequent recurrence. You can unroof tracks or draining nodules, scrape out what's left, and then desiccate the base. It's variable recurrence, you know, about 20-25%, but some stay gone. There may be a prolonged healing time and there may be some scarring. You can use electrocutting to basically excise an area. That's good because there's inherent hemostasis, but it's the most likely to leave significant dyschromia and even post-op pain. Then there's wide surgical excision. Just take the whole thing out all the way down to maybe even including fat. That's the lowest recurrence rate and a high satisfaction rate, but we really don't know the optimum approach. There's a reasonably high risk of infection and other morbid side effects. So that's all the surgical interventions. The one thing that's true is that if you give a biologic drug and surgery, they actually do better than either the biologic drug alone or surgery alone. Lots of tests can be performed in the dermatology clinic, but which ones are worth the time? In the Dermalorian Derm Decoder, dermatology nurse practitioner Wendy Cantrell and physician assistant Andrea Nguyen discuss some tests they use on a regular basis in the clinic. I think a KOH is something that every derm provider should be very comfortable with. That can offer a lot of um, narrowing down your differentials and knowing what you're treating. 
um, because if you're treating something that's KOH positive, you don't you, positive. You don't want to put um, a steroid on it. You want to make sure you're treating it accurately. So I do think that that is something that I do in the office, um, and I'm I'm pretty comfortable with. You know, it, it does add time. You have to wait for that. You have to wait for the prep to um, dissolve so that you can see um, whether it's positive or not. I do think that that's very important. Yeah. Um, I, you know, that's good, and I, I would say be comfortable with, you know, learning how to order and, and perform biopsies, like doing a DIF, mm -hmm. uh, and knowing that, you know, there, there's some time sensitivity to that when you take that specimen and the solution that you have to put it in is Michelle's solution. Mm -hmm. um, tissue cultures are always helpful too, yep. especially when you're looking for atypical, you know, infections. You know, they specifically ask about the hair pull test. I do think that that's an important test to gently, you know, kind of, if you have somebody coming in, and all of us have seen tons of COVID-related telogen effluvium, um, I think that that is very helpful um, to, to patients, you know, to, to look and see if they're still having active shedding um, and explaining to them what, what telogen effluvium is and that kind of thing. I also, um, you know, do... Um, Sometimes I will do part width, you know, so I will measure part width um, to see if we, if we document whether they are continuing to lose hair or whether they're not. And that brings us to the time where we part. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Dermalorian podcast from the Dermatology Education Foundation. For more information, resources, or to register for Derm 2023, visit dermnppa.org. Durham 2023 is August 3rd through 6th in Las Vegas. We'll see you there.